Hello, welcome to Cerebral Flex, episode 39. This is about Frederick Nietzsche. I think I'm saying it right. I'm horrible with, with German anything. Um, I think you got to say it with more pizzazz like Nietzsche. Ah, You got to sound angry. It's German. Everything in German sounds incredibly angry. <laughs> I'm not angry enough, maybe. Maybe, maybe. No, no. Maybe you're not. One would think. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So yeah, this guy's life, uh, I had the wonderful task of uh, reading about his life because um, I'm not as into philosophy as Jareth, and he's going to be mainly talking about Nietzsche. 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 Yeah, and the reason we're going to talk about Try Nietzsche. to say his name three times. <laughs> the reason we're going to talk about Nietzsche is because our next episode is going to be about um, postmodern philosophy which was primarily at first it was a French movement. And we're going to talk about less about postmodern art. And we're going to talk more about postmodern philosophy. And it kind of is where I think the United States may be heading in its way of thought and how it's going to be dealing with a lot of these crises that are happening. Um, but to talk about postmodernism, which we'll be talking about next week, you have to talk about Nietzsche because all the French philosophers who uh, were part of the postmodernist movement in France were very big into Nietzsche. He's kind of, you have your Socrates and your Plato, you have your, uh, your Kant, your Descartes, and then Nietzsche, he's the next big one. He's kind of the more modern philosopher. Um, he's one of the 20th century's greatest and most influential figures. Uh, the other big ones during the 20th century would have been Karl Marx, uh, Charles Darwin with his uh, evolution theory and discovery and Sigmund Freud with the beginning of psychoanalysis and uh, the popularizing of psychology. So he's one of the 20th century's uh, biggest figures of all time. People constantly quote him in and out of context in terrible ways. And so we're going to get down and, and talk about him. Um, some interesting little life facts about Nietzsche um i don't know if you want to jump into it since you want to be the uh guy who reads the notes but he was one of the youngest professors of uh one of the schools he taught at what was the name of the school uh it's jumping in notes i was going to talk about when he was born and stuff you know oh, he was born he lived he died wow <laughs> all right let me let me skip over here you, you you have it in your notes right here. He became the youngest person to ever hold the chair of classical philology at the University of Basel uh, in 1869. I guess if you want to... What wanna... page is that? Like, I wrote so many notes. It's the first bullet point. Yeah, so he was a professor from uh, 1869 to 78, and despite his offer coming at a time when he was considering giving up philology... Uh, for science, he accepted to this day, Nietzsche is still among the youngest of the tenured classics professors on record. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that was like page whatever, page four of ten. <laughs> I go in order, systematic order. Uh, so um, he was one of the youngest ever to be a professor. Um, he was 25, 25 to 34. Yeah. Years old. Um, yeah. Which is 
still in a feat to this day. Um, another thing about back in this time too, and that might be why I like people like Carl Jung and Nietzsche and stuff like that is they were educated in ways that were not educated anymore. Um, they read the entire Western canon when it came to philosophy, um, starting with Plato and Socrates and reading everything and seemingly understanding everything up until the current literature of the time. Um, when it comes to Nietzsche in particular, um, he has four different philosophical themes that he deals with, um, which we'll get into. But one thing to know about Nietzsche is one of his primary influences was uh, Arthur Schopenhauer um, and particularly his work, The World is Will and Representation. Um, so he read Schopenhauer's works, but he also read those of Immanuel Kant, uh, George Hegel, Socrates, Plato, many others. Like I said, these people back in the day when you went to college, you got an actual education and you you learned all of this stuff and um, understood it in ways that I don't think people of modernity understand. Um, he not only studied philosophy, but he was into the classics. He was very into poetry. Um, one of his favorite poets was, uh, I always mess up how you say his name because it's spelled differently, but it's pronounced Gitta. Um, Johann Wolfgang, Johann Wolfgang von Gitta. Um, and he particularly loved his poetry and he actually used his love of Gitta to craft one of his core philosophical values. Um, now, a lot of people, when they hear of Nietzsche, they think that he is a, a nihilist, um, and they tend to cast him in like a negative light and take things that he says at face value without actually reading the subtext of what he's saying. Mm -hmm. um that's probably because philosophy is a really hard thing to read and understand um so before we get into that do you want to go over um his death and how his no. sister became no now we're all out of whack because we didn't start with when he was born so now i'm just going to jump right into what i think was juicy all right about the man what was so juicy he, about the man? He spent this weird little time period from like 35 to 44. Um, him and this woman, Lou Andreas Salome and Paul Rie, uh, they traveled through Italy and uh, planned to establish an educational commune together. Um, basically, both of these men were truly in love with this woman and this woman wanted nothing to do with anyone. Um not until later on where she had an affair. She had, man, whatever. But this this tribe, this little group of three went off and they, they, they taught each other many things in science and philosophy and enjoyed many things. And in secret, both men proposed to her and she said no to them. And there's a bunch of drama and weirdness. And then he went off into like a horrible depression because uh, Salome and this other guy like ditched him 
because he could not get over his love of this woman and just kept obsessing about her. Anyway, that's all. I just thought that was a juicy bit in his life. Probably the most exciting thing he ever experienced. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed reading about that. And also there was a separate article I read about her and she wasn't a crazy woman. She was very smart. Um, and she inspired many people. Yeah. Many, uh, intellectuals. So, so read about her, Lou Andreas Salome. I but. think part of why his philosophy gets so misconstrued other than people not reading beyond face value is partially due to after his death, his sister, um, Elizabeth. You didn't want to talk about Salome at all? All right. Let's see how it is. <laughs> I mean, Salome kind of falls into his philosophical, I think his philosophical reasoning behind Amor Fati, which is a love of your fate. But that's the last one that we're going to tackle. Ah, all right. <sighs> so we're already past his death, though. I just wanted to give some context to why I think his philosophy is misunderstood. And then we're going to go into his philosophy. Ah, okay. You have to start at the end sometimes to, to get to the beginning. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So his sister, um, she was not the uh, greatest person on earth. Um, she was, she was huh? She was fascist as fuck. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's one of the the negative connotations that people, when they're talking about Nietzsche, they they try to bring up like, um, and you'll see this a lot online. A lot of people who are part of the red pilled community or the far right, uh, people like Richard Spencer, uh, the neo Nazi, they like to say things like, "Oh, I read Nietzsche and he opened my eyes and I, I saw the lies and stuff like that." And that's because. Um, Elizabeth. either a, they're completely misunderstanding what he's saying, um, and they they or they skim off uh, cliff notes. Um, well, she she Elizabeth, his sister, released published his works and basically pushed it in a fascist narrative. Exactly, which made a lot of people, you know, become misled about his works. Right, and it wasn't until later, until his friends, I believe Wagner and um others like cl cleared his name right because but um before he died he was still working on many different yeah. things but he was he was strictly anti he he was against uh anti-semitism and he was against uh nationalism yeah um, like his his so. three big main gripes were um like his three things that he hated were obviously the big state uh he hated nationalism and anti-Semitism. Anti um, he hated anti-Semitism so much that when his sister Elizabeth, who was a far-right fascist, married uh, Bernard Farster. Yeah. Forster. A renowned anti-Semite. Um, Nietzsche refused to go to the wedding. He's like, no, I'm not I'm not going to your to your wedding with this guy who is an anti-Semite. Um so people who are on the far right or white nationalists or people who enjoy Nietzsche are are missing out on a core part of his uh, his belief system, which was that um, he he was not he was 
not an anti-Semite. He very much thought anti-Semitism would uh, lead to the downfall of Western society. And it kind of did in a way. Um, but the work that she published and kind of she she rewrote a lot of the things and, and put it in a way where it made it seem um, more salacious to she, to she edited his unpublished writings to fit her German ultra nationalist ideology right while and often book, contradicting his uh, his opinions right and that book which, was called the will to power um, yeah and it's often his most mis represented work because again she compiled it in a way that it wasn't meant to it was also one of the last things he wrote before he died um wherein he was still talking about master and and slave morality and he hadn't quite fleshed out everything quite yet um so it was very easy to manipulate but the work was actually republished much later um in its original form without her tampering um and if you read it it's actually nowhere near what the original version of it was um so she did some um some not some not so nice stuff with her brother's works to uh push an agenda um luckily now, we have walter kaufman he okay. did most of the editing of nietzsche's work later on when nietzsche kind of became popularized and more uh widely read and he uh he kind of compiled the notes in the way that Nietzsche meant them to be was Nietzsche the creator of existentialism would most scholars agree um no I think no. most scholars agree that the creator of existentialism would have been Soren Kierkegaard, which is actually one of the few philosophers that Nietzsche wasn't as familiar with um, because Kierkegaard was still somewhat new. But I think most people would agree. Um, and when we talk about postmodernist philosophical thought next week, uh, we'll learn that the, the order in which the um, postmodernists usually read is um, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche with a little bit of, of Hegel thrown in. So um, most people mislabel Nietzsche as a nihilist. I would say he's more existentialist, but in creating existential thought, Kierkegaard is usually given that lens. So Kierkegaard would be like the godfather of existentialist thought, whereas you could see Nietzsche as like the uh, the the current father of existentialist thought. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Um, so Nietzsche, we've established, doesn't like the big state. He doesn't like nationalism. He's a huge anti-Semite, or he's against huge anti-Semitism. He hated it. Um, a lot of people have like this weird, and this is a more modern thing. They have this weird association with uh, uh, the Nazi party and Nietzsche, mainly because of the idea of the Ubermensch. Um, or the Superman, because the Nazi party obviously believed that the Aryans were the superior race. Um, and everybody seems to think Hitler got this idea from Nietzsche. Uh, Hitler never read or understood Nietzsche or any of his ideas. Um, there are other people within the Nazi party who had a brief, um, a brief reading of Nietzsche. Um, again, they kind of just took the Ubermensch idea 
and discarded the rest because that didn't fit their ideology. Um, if Nietzsche had ever seen the Nazi party rise to prominence because he died long before the Nazi party ever became a thing, um, he would have been extremely dismayed and disgusted um, and he would not have at all enjoyed their propagandizing <laughs> of his work, especially the will to power, which his sister had, uh, had uh, edited as we talked about. So, <clears throat> and then, and then he did a bunch of opium and pretty much went nuts. Yes. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. Yeah. He got really addicted to opium. Um, it was actually the, the interesting thing, thing about Nietzsche is he has a lot of different works that are published um, and you can see his first published work was The Birth of Tragedy and you can see as he's going through his philosophical thought which is the interesting thing to read philosophers at their starting point a lot of people tend to like hear like what the philosopher's greatest work is and they jump right into that but you don't really have any context because you haven't figured out how they're thinking about things up until that point so it can be confusing so from the birth of tragedy all the way on to his magnum opus which is thus spoke zarathustra you can see him struggling and trying to conceptualize certain ideas that he wants to talk about and then in thus spoke zarathustra which is it's a philosophical text, but it's also a story about a character. So he's kind of melding his philosophical thought into a, a fictional story. Um, after he wrote Thus Book Zarathustra, the ideas in the book are, are so interesting and complex and thought-provoking. Can you give that, us an example? Huh? Can you give us an, an example? We're going to talk about the Superman in a minute. All right. Um, that's where the main conceptualization of the Superman, and he starts working on uh, master and slave morality in this book and looking at power systems in a way that hadn't been looked at before. Um, and so that book kind of broke his mind in some ways, and then he became addicted to opium he became very sick he caught uh, it's not confirmed um but a lot of people say that he caught syphilis and that was kind of the deterioration of nietzsche um the the story well, goes go ahead he he served in the prussian forces uh during the franco-prussian war 1870 uh -huh. to 71 when he was 26 and 27 years old as a medical orderly yeah. Um, and in his time in the military, he experienced um, a bunch of crap, but he also contracted <laughs> diphtheria, which is a bacterial infection that can lead to difficulty breathing, heart failure, paralysis, and even death. Um, our babies all get vaccinated for it. And he also got dysentery, which is an infection of your intestines. Um, and they also speculate that he may have also contracted syphilis which is a bacterial infection usually spread through sexual relations. And uh, yeah, because he frequented a brothel. And so, yeah, he had a ton of infections at the same time when he was young. And he just went through, he went through some shit. Yeah. And syphilis, isn't that what uh, Al Capone died of? That, I believe 
that he died of syphilis. Can't that make you go crazy? I'm pretty sure. It. I mean, it's definitely not good. <laughs> the guy's brain went through a lot, yet he still composed a lot of great works. Yeah. All the way until he died. Yes. Um, Interesting. Yeah, he's stuff. an extremely interesting person he was uh, he and was. he died fairly young too um because at that time i think like the the age of death was starting to get a little bit prolonged because medicine was getting better but he died at uh i i believe it was 56 he was um which is crazy so if he had lived longer and finished his works who yeah. knows how philosophy would be today um yeah. so Nietzsche is he a nihilist? Um I would say no and I think most people think that he's a nihilist because of the phrase god is dead. Um and I think labeling Nietzsche as a nihilist is kind of like labeling Ronald Reagan as a communist. Um <laughs> he is kind of the exact opposite of a nihilist because he, though he recognizes nihilism all of his thought and work is how to overcome nihilism. He knew nihilism was going to happen. He could see the writing on the wall for Western society um, and the the end of the, the Christian church was leading to a kind of almost, in his mind, a dystopian landscape. Um, he did not like Christianity at all. Um, he was very anti Christianity, um, as we'll get into when we talk about master and slave morality. Um, he was a good man. <laughs> a good man. <laughs> um, and so to overcome this nihilism, you have to see it for what it is and look at the dangers that it poses um, to society. And you have to kind of recognize the things that were bulwarks against nihilism at the time, which was, you know, Christianity and we had the the enlightenment so there was there's a scientific culture there is objective truth um and the ending of Christianity due to this scientific and philosophical movement from the enlightenment um they were kind of the symptoms of nihilism because in Christianity people found peace and purpose and meaning um and without those uh, a lot of people started to get lose very their shit. yes lose lose their shit they lose they got nihilistic um so when looking at his works their their critique of historical and and the genealogical origins um that came into being as a consequence of the western religious practices and philosophy um but he's not a nihilist the idea that he was is kind of traced back to Christians propagandizing his words because he was pretty <laughs> vehement against Christians. Um, well, they kind of didn't like the the phrase God is dead and his critique of their institutions. So a lot of religious of, people believe if you don't have a belief in something in the afterlife, then you have no hope in anything. Like you're just yeah. a hopeless individual. Yeah. So they, they kind of, they kind of ragged on Nietzsche a little bit. Um, so, one of his core philosophies, and we'll, we'll get into it now, is what did he mean by by God is dead? 
Um, and he wrote this in The Gay Science, which is the book he published right before Thus Spoke uh, Zarathustra. And this is the quote. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How should we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned, has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe the blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? So that's the whole quote. Um, very Explain poetic. it. Break very it down. <laughs> what he is saying essentially is what's causing this, this existential crisis is God is an all-knowing, uh, omnipotent being. He's all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful. With the Enlightenment, we have proved that humans are not the center of the universe. The universe is not... Um, made specifically for mankind to inhabit and that in a very existential nihilistic way we are an intelligent species sitting on a rock uh, spinning around space and we are seemingly alone there's no proof of god there's no proof of any other intelligent life forms out there there's just us and that realization among the popular masses killed god and so we killed god with our curiosity we were too curious we wanted answers to questions and now we've killed god and how do we deal with killing gods because he says in this last quote must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it um so in a way he's saying try to become your own god and find your own meaning um but to do that, you need to actually be able to to think for yourself. Um, so many people who are anti-theologians and rabid atheists, they like to use Nietzsche's quote of God is dead to justify a disbelief in any type of divine counterpart to human existence. Why, why do philosophers have to write in like tongue? Why do they have to write in like, poetry or some crap like just say what you want to say why do they have to twist all the words and make it all flowery well is it because they're feeling themselves is it ego it's i would say it's a little bit ego i would also say especially at the time they're um, trying to flex their vernacular oh there's Look a how many words i know Look at all these nice words it's a little yeah. bit of flexing vernacular um i would also say that most people who are philosophers are educated yeah. and again, in ways that a lot of people in this modern time really aren't. So yeah. not only do they have better vocabulary and vernacular, but they also have studied philosophy and art and Nietzsche, especially he was super into poetry. So it kind of makes sense that his philosophical musings would be poetic in nature. It's kind of, it was, the, it was the milieu of the time. Yes. <laughs> like, I love it. I, I think Noam Chomsky is my favorite. Like he's not a philosopher. I would say he's, he's a linguist and a political scientist, but like he just keeps it real. Like he'll might, he might use larger words, but it's in order in syntax of like 
where you would place a word. I feel like philosophers just have to like mess it up a bit. Anyway, I'm sorry. I took it took it off on a different path, but I just no, had that's to know. okay. I always yeah. wondered like why philosophers have to like make it all flowery. Are you writing poetry or are you asking questions that we all should be asking? Because if you're asking questions we all should be asking, maybe you should write it clearly so we can actually ask them. Because if you write it in some flowery, weird, bullshit way, nobody wants to read that shit and nobody's going to ask the questions you want everyone to ask. But is but is poetry not questioning, questioning things? Right, but if I want to read poetry, I'll go get a book of poetry. When I want to read philosophy, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the deepest questions man has ever made yeah. or ever had. Yeah. I want to know the deepest questions anyone has ever asked. And I don't want to read it in poetry. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is I do not want to read it in poetry. When, when you read philosophy, you want somebody to just give you the answer. You don't want to arrive no, I want them at, to at the answer, answer. Because in philosophy, no answer is actually the answer. I want them to tell me what they figured out for themselves. What have you figured out? Interesting. You, know? you don't have to write it in poetry. Just tell me what the fuck you think. That's it. Simple plan. What do you think? What's your deepest thoughts? Put it in a book. It's not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> to each their own. I guess. <clears throat> it's just a matter of feeling themselves. They're flexing on people. That's okay. Sometimes you got to flex. I guess. It's like it's dropping easy. bars, but in a different way. I don't know. I, I don't know. Freud and uh, all those all those therapists helped me. You know, the ego is a problem. <laughs> They're a little hard to read, too. They are. <laughs> They're feeling themselves, too. I also think that this is just like I, it, the time my, period. Probably. It's not just time period, but as time has progressed, we become less and less <clears throat> educated, which means that <laughs> when people yeah. are, are writing in a flowery prose we we don't understand because we've dumbed our culture down to sending emojis and smiley faces to each other instead of actually communicating with one another well were there news articles like that too like when they read the news every day was it all flowery and crazy and oh i'm sure it was like verily here on the 31st of october in the era of king george the 29th <laughs> and i and i understood all of that <laughs> i was reading wittgenstein with you the other if day if you're huh? if you're reading philosophy <clears throat> and you're you're looking for somebody to just give you the cliff notes and the answers you're not being intellectual you're being intellectually lazy yeah but i'm getting the answers at the end of the day we both have the answers yeah, it's all go it's all up to interpretation at the end of the day. I like if say. I if I read the cliff notes of, I don't know, 10 years of scholars that actually just spent their whole lives doing, you know, learning philosophy. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I could come away with more. I don't know, well thought out things than one person that thinks about it. But what if that person reads the philosophy and they get something totally different out of it than uh, if you had read it yourself. Ah, so it is just like looking at a painting. Everyone comes away with a different interpretation. <clears throat> I mean, if we're like, we've been talking about with Nietzsche, like his works are misrepresented by a lot of people who are 
anti-Semitic and racist and stupid um, simply due to their misunderstanding and misreading of his works. Well, now, yes, get get into it because I'm ruining your entire thing on, on this man. But the Ubermatch or the Superman and the um, slave mentality versus the master mentality. Yes. Like I can I can see how those would be misinterpreted. Yes. So <clears throat> to finish off, God is dead um, because that curtails into why he conceptualized the Ubermensch and stuff. A lot of anti-theologians and rabid atheists, they'll use the quote of Nietzsche's God is dead to justify disbelief in God. Um, but Nietzsche did not necessarily believe that there, that the death of God was a good thing. And he didn't necessarily believe that there was no God either. Um, what he was trying to say is that without God, the basic belief system of Western Europe was in jeopardy and that Christian morality was by no means self-evident. Uh, Christianity, it's a system, a whole view of things, um, a whole view of things through that are <clears throat> thrown out together by breaking one main concept out of it, the faith in God, the one whole break. So what he's saying is you you've disproven god or that we're the center of the universe so you've kind of made the whole of christianity null and void um and he actually believed that for some people the news that god is dead or that the old god is dead would be great a great thing for philosophers artists writers people who are intellectuals and free spirits they would feel a certain burden lifted off of them they would be able to achieve a different set of morality and he actually really liked a lot of Greek philosophy and a lot of pagan ideas. Um, so he kind of thought they'd be able to achieve a different set of morality and pursue the pagan ideologies of the past and kind of embody the godlike qualities of a lot of these pagan gods. Um, but he recognized that for the vast majority of people that the death of God was a bad thing because it would cause anxiety, despair, and kind of this disbelief in me, uh, this belief in the meaninglessness of existence. Um, he feared that our new, um, our new discovery that the earth did not revolve around us, that we aren't the masters of earth. We aren't put here to be the masters of earth that science had proven man's lowly origin from, he wasn't just created into existence, but he evolved over time. It would cause crises that people who enjoy herd mentality just weren't going to be able to mentally accept. Um, and he feared that the understanding of the world as we currently see it would lead to a world of pessimism, a will to nothingness, um, that we were going to go through our lives and essentially not care about anything. And it was kind of this nihilistic mindset that he feared and it was antithetical to the life affirming philosophy that he himself promoted <clears throat> his fear of nihilism and our reaction to it is actually shown in will to power. The last thing he wrote and I'll leave off on it with this little quote. What I relate is the history of the next two centuries. I describe what is coming. What can no longer come differently. The advent of nihilism for some time. Now our whole European culture has been moving toward a catastrophe. He rejected the ideology of mankind needing to find meaning as a child of God and give 
life on earth value by relation to heaven. He didn't enjoy this concept at all. Um, he also would not have been surprised by the rise of communism, Nazism, nationalism, and many other ideologies that have risen to prominence in the 20th century um, because of this need to have this belief system. Um, when it comes to the political landscape nowadays, um, it's very much like religion. It's very much uh, a team that you're a part of ideologically, and no matter what your team does it's always better than the other team um and this is a form of nihilism in and of itself um so his writings they're not just a critique of the religious institutions but he also heavily critiqued governmental bodies ruling over mass over masses and the master slave morality and he kind of tells us how to deal with nihilism and how to deal with nihilism is to become the ubermensch um and what is the ubermensch uh, the Ubermensch, he conceptualized it in his magnum opus, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, that was published in 1883. Uh, Nietzsche's character Zarathustra, which was an, an homage, an ode to the historical figure of Zoroaster, who he liked very much, uh, he posits the Ubermensch as a goal for humanity to set itself. The literal translation of Ubermensch is either Superman or Overman. So now that God is dead... Um, and there's a realization that we are all alone in the cosmos via science. We need something to assume the role of God. Nietzsche believed evolution never stopped because we also have to remember at the time, Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution is very prominent. Um, so he didn't think evolution ever stopped that we needed to move on to the next evolution of mankind. Um, and he was completely uninterested in physical attributes uh, he didn't really care about the physical qualities. He cared more about the psychological qualities. So he believed that the Ubermensch wasn't necessarily physically superior like the, the Nazi party did when they kind of took the Ubermensch from him. He was thinking of it in a psychological context. He believed that the Ubermensch would be psychologically superior to the people of our day. Uh, they would be independently minded they could create their own values they will carve out their own uh path away from the herd they would understand the need for violence to further push society in a direction of evolution and they could be selfish in strategic ways uh greatness would be a reform of humanities towards the pagan values over christian values um he very much liked to play with this idea of dionysian and uh apollian dynamics um, Dionysus being the god of wine and revelry and celebration, and Apollo being this very logical, um, very um, enlightened mentality and kind of combining the two into creating the perfect type of society. Um, the Ubermensch would also kind of shut off a lot of low IQ, as we would call it, um, feelings like jealousy or resentfulness of others. He wouldn't be jealous of what others have. He would try to become his own thing. Um, and one of the most important things Nietzsche thought is he would accept suffering as a necessary component of existence. Um, he understood that to live life, there's going to be a certain amount of suffering and that you should understand that suffering and accept it. Um, and fuel that 
that acceptance and that pain into great works of art and literature and uh, bettering yourself to better society. Um, he believed that they would be interested in the practical application of culture to raise the mentality of society. Um, he thought that the Ubermensch would be, um, he thought we would be kind of appalled by the way that the Ubermensch operates because they would not necessarily be super egalitarian, benevolent, compassionate, and they'd be uninterested in conflict or trying to push through scientific advancements. They would instead focus on bringing salvation to mankind through culture and elevating the culture to a higher minded society, a society that thought in a way that is much higher than the herd mentality that it currently operates under. Um, and so the Nazi party, they obviously propagandized his work and they developed their own idealistic Ubermensch, which was one of a eugenics in nature with the blonde hair and the blue eyes. And Nietzsche would have hated this because once again, it's a misrepresentation of his work. And though we could probably posit that the Ubermensch would be maybe physically superior to people, he was much more concerned with the psychological aspect of the Ubermensch. And he thought that the best way to overcome nihilism was to become your own individual, develop your own identity, develop your own moral codes, what was and was not acceptable to you, and to live life in a way that was fulfilling to you by fulfilling the morals that you set out for yourself and the goals that you set out for yourself. I'm learning that my conclusion is correct. If Which in, is what? If you, if you need to interpret the work yes it will often be misinterpreted yes <laughs> and so like this guy Ru rudiger safronsky yes saying some commenters associate the ubermensch with uh eugenics which i can see how you could easily argue that yes yes and if it is purely psychological or even intellectual he's still wanting a better human you know a better human being one yes. that doesn't need a God, which I would like. Yes. I mean, I agree. I mean, if human beings were strong enough to live without some made up sky daddy and get yes. on with their life, then they'd be a lot better off. And then we could be productive in many meaningful ways. Yes. Yeah. You know, and save the planet instead of thinking God's going to come save us all or some shit. But you could also no, see in reading it how people will arrive at their own conclusions based yeah. on the text. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's unfortunate. I wish I wish he would have been clear. Um, and then everyone would know he's not an anti-Semite in any way. He's not fascist or nationalistic in any way. He's not anything that anyone's interpreted him to be in the past. He is quite the opposite and that he wants people to be better towards society. He doesn't and... want people to be uh, nihilistic and resentful towards right. towards one another. He wants them right. to live life in a way that's meaningful and fulfilling completely. And right. by doing that and by becoming uh, an Ubermensch and a person of great psychological renown and producing great works of art and helping further the culture, because what we don't realize is a substitute for belief would be culture. 
And he thought that through culture and and making culture really rich and vibrant that we would we would come out of the nihilistic aspects uh, that plague us with the revelation of science. Um, but yeah, it, there it's obviously easy to misinterpret his work if you're reading it for a specific reason. But I think in reading it, you kind of have to be disingenuous with yourself to get on the whole eugenics angle that the Nazi party and white nationalists try to use. Um, I think that might be bred somewhat from white people thinking that they're more intelligent than people of color or minorities. I think that might have a little bit to do with why they might read it that way. Um, but that's their own reading. That's not what he meant at all. Um, well, I, didn't, I don't think he hung out with a lot of black people. Yeah, I don't think there were a whole lot of black people in uh, Austria and Germany at the time. So probably There's not. There's still not that many black people in Austria or Germany. Fair enough. <laughs> there are in Germany more so than Austria. I, I would say that... Uh, they're African more than anything. Maybe they're playing it safe, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> um, so those are <clears throat> kind of his, his two core philosophies those are the most talked about ones ubermensch god is dead a rebuttal to nihilism his other two we're going to talk about they're going to be a little bit more brief um but they kind of make up the four pillars to to nietzsche and um what i think a lot of the postmodernists were getting into was maybe not necessarily a rebuttal of god is dead or the ubermensch but this idea of master morality and slave morality and so the concept of master morality versus slave morality begins in Nietzsche's seminal book, Beyond Good and Evil, and later in an essay in his book on the genealogy of morality, both which were published after this book, Zarathustra, because he started playing with the idea of master morality and slave morality in this book, Zarathustra, and then he wanted to explore that concept a little bit more. He never got to fully flesh out the concept uh, because he died before it was finished. A lot of his works, unfortunately, at this time, deal more with slave morality than master morality um, and a critique of slave morality. I think if he would have been around a little bit longer, he would have gotten to the problematic, um, the problematic ideas surrounding master morality. But because he didn't, he died before he had finished fleshing out this entire thing. Uh, again, it's easy to, to misinterpret, misinterpret him as being for master morality um so to get into it <clears throat> nietzsche tells us a story to understand master and slave morality and he kind of describes an ancient society with two classes the masters and the slaves the masters are strong they are creative wealthy powerful and they are capable of doing whatever they like they worship themselves and they see themselves as benevolent naming the opposite of themselves weak and feeble as bad being bad is how a person is. They don't choose to be that way. They're just losers. Um, the slaves, they are they are far less well off as they cannot do what they like. Um, they're kind of oppressed by the masters because the masters hold the power when it comes to uh, financial and societal gains. Um, and because they're weak and they're poor, they become resentful. The slaves view themselves as bad because that's how the masters view them. Um, and he kind of used this context in terms of uh, the church. 
and how the church kind of exploited people um, because the priests and the kings and the queens of the time, they are they're the good people. They're the people who are chosen by God to rule over uh, the sheep. And, and it's bad to be to be a sheep and to be poor and to be meek and feeble. Um, and so the slaves view themselves as bad. And because that's the way the master views them and because they lack the conceptual capacity to do otherwise. And after a certain time, there's a, a bit of a slave revolt occurs and it's not necessarily a physical revolution because the slave, the slaves are, they're too weak. They're too weak minded for, uh, for a revolution to occur. Um, but they have a sort of revenge that is a moral one. Uh, in this moral revolt, the slaves say that they can only endorse their suffering redefined as being both good and a choice. So now they flip the script. The slaves are praising the meek, the poor, and those unable to end their suffering. And now the masters have become the evil ones for choosing to be wealthy, powerful, and capable. They're, uh, so, they're, they're the bad people because they, they're the ones who are not poor. Can we, can we discuss it? Can we discuss this? Yes, we could discuss this. Okay. So the masters make the morals. In At the first, first place, yes. The, the masters create what is good and bad. Yes. Basically they tell everyone this is what's good, what's bad. And the slave morality is an re a reaction to what they set in motion. Yes. And it vilifies its oppressor. Yes. And then I agree with the slave morality getting revenge by careful subversion rather than violence. And I also agree that when they flip the script, like you said, uh, that the good. Uh, OK, so first of all, the, 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 the master said that anything useful or practical is what's good. Yes, that's one of their moral things they set up. And then the slaves said, well, what's good for everyone and not just you, is the ultimate good. Yeah. So how is it not the better? I, I don't know how he would argue against the slave morality if, if they're the ones arguing that everyone should benefit, not just a few. And the rich are saying no, because you just want to drag us into being slaves. Wow. But if everyone is a slave, everybody's living a lot better anyway. What happens is... With master and slave morality. So now the slaves, they've flipped the viewpoint, right? The, yeah. the slaves have given themselves the psychological strength to continue suffering. And it allows them to get back at the masters for undermining their value systems that allow the masters to achieve their success, right? Mm -hmm. So they've like, all right, so being rich and powerful is bad. You are bad. We're good because we're weak and we're powerless, right? I guess my question is, what is Nietzsche trying to say here? Is so he agreeing with trying to say is in having this this weak-minded herd mentality, it allows you to be manipulated because what we see is you had this Roman period where there were the slaves and there were the masters. And then slowly over time, with the Christianization of things, right? The meek and the slaves and uh the poor, they are they are the they are the people who are are going to heaven and the masters, though it is their God-given birthright to rule over the people, they also are repenting for being the way that they are. And so what they're doing is they're subverting 
what the slaves are trying to do in a psychological way because they are still ruling over the slave class but now they are also viewed by they're also playing into the narrative of being bad and so they're going to church and they're repenting and they're they're um they're trying to show their repentance for being you know the kings of the world and they're trying to appear meek and humble because that is what is accepted by the masses but in real time they're still in charge of everything and they're still exploiting you but the masses have become complacent in their suffering because they say it's good it's okay to be meek meek and humble uh the meek so will he, he was the just earth. pointing it out he was just pointing it out to everyone yeah he's essentially saying that in using these this the christian values of the meek shall inherit the earth and focusing on the christian beatitudes christ beatitudes of um you know sell all your belongings and follow me because it's it's better to be to be it's easier for a poor man to enter heaven than it is for a rich man to enter heaven because of his possessions and this idea of like being meek and weak and it's 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 easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven yes thank you that's the quote <laughs> we, we um, both got indoctrinated buddy yeah um <laughs> but he his one. critique of it is the slaves aren't really doing anything because they're still allowing themselves to be oppressed by the masters the masters are just playing into the narrative of a, okay we're bad and yes it's good to be it's good to be a peasant and farm my fields because that's what god wants you to do he wants you to be meek and humble he wants you to pay taxes to me because it's better for you to be poor it's hard for me to be rich very hard and so he was pointing out the way that this slave morality is always going to allow people who are uh weak-minded and praise their weakness to continue to be exploited by people more powerful than them well look at look at how trump got you know praised he's just praised because he's a tv personality and he's rich yes like really that's the highest quality of human you can come to like praise yeah and that was his That's argument sad. against slave morality is that it focused on the weak, weakest aspects of human nature. It allowed the herd mentality to propagate itself. And then eventually it would lead to the nihilistic fall of society because after 2000 years, um, yeah, slave morality, it stabilized the West for about 2000 years, but we were seeing the downfall of it with the enlightenment. And now we're killing each other at Travis Scott concerts just to get close to, uh, yeah. A person that's the higher in status than we are. The ultimate nihilism. Um, slave morality. And like I said, he, he fully fleshed out slave morality and why it was bad because it's essentially uh, an easier way to say it is it's herd mentality. Um, master and slave is just the dynamic in which it works in, but maybe for people of more sensitive ears, we'll, we'll, we'll say it's it's not slave morality. It's, it's herd mentality. Um, that's essentially what he was arguing against. And he didn't get around to critiquing master morality before his death. And he likely probably would have had a, a rebuke of master morality because in the way that he describes it, it's very self-centered and exploitative. And when it came to the Ubermensch, he didn't believe that the Ubermensch needed to exploit anybody. The Ubermensch rose to greatness because of himself. So the myth that Trump is the self-made billionaire when he's not, 
that's actually him trying to idealize himself to become an Ubermensch because the Ubermensch would actually become a billionaire of his own uh, his own artistic and intelligent creation. Uh, I don't that's think I've read of one one billionaire getting there without having a nice little head start. Yeah, and that's why we despise billionaires because not a single billionaire has got to where they are uh, based off of merit whatsoever. Yeah. They've always been given a leg up, um, and that's not the next evolution of, of human nature as Nietzsche saw it. Um, that's not becoming the Ubermensch. To become an Ubermensch, you would have to literally become a billionaire based off of your own merit, not exploiting any type of system or people to get there. Um, and that's just not how wealth is gained. And he also didn't see the Ubermensch as necessarily being uber wealthy. He saw them as being somebody who is a savior to society, who doesn't necessarily... Uh, he doesn't necessarily perpetuate the, the weakness of people, but he doesn't exploit it either. He tries to make people stronger. Um, right. It's kind of like promotes weird... an egalitarian huh? society. He promotes an egalitarian society. He promotes an egalitarian society, but he also recognized that we'd probably be appalled by the Ubermensch because they wouldn't necessarily be egalitarian in and of themselves because they are kind of self-centered. See why 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 do they have to be self-centered? Because to achieve greatness, you have greatness, to be fully yourself. You have to not be concerned with how other people see you or yourself, I guess. I don't think that's full I don't think that's the same as being arrogant. I guess. Yeah, I guess not. Cause I don't think I'm great. In the slightest, I'm pretty mediocre in chess. I'm, you know, I even I even had a nickname of meaty because I'm mediocre in almost everything. But I still don't care about what other people think of me. You know, you can you can be great in your own ways and love yourself and value yourself in your own ways, even if you're not better than everyone else. Right. I think it's when we when we compare ourselves that we become sad. Yeah, I say. Base your own creations on what you've done before. Are you getting better? Are you getting worse? Are you just stagnant? And just base it on your own, you know? I think that's the healthiest way to go about it. I feel like if you're trying to be a Superman, you're going you're gonna to get real sad real soon. Well, that kind of goes into the last little thing that Nietzsche believed, which was Amor yeah. Fati. And that is, uh, it's essentially love of one's fate. And that's a concept that he talked about consistently. Um he thought the best approach to any type of suffering or hardships in your life that you don't let them drag you down and become nihilistic and despairing, but that you accept them and you allow them to better, not just your own relationship with how you live in the world, but how you live with others and how you funnel these things into creative ways to further help the culture um so he he believed that a love of your fate not necessarily a love of your suffering but a love of your life and what you have was the best way for mankind to continue to evolve which is a very hard thing to do when you have all these different systems that are trying to oppress you and um, 
control aspects of your life. And that's why he hated the big state. He hated nationalism. He hated anything that's kind of ideological in the sense of it being a team sport or a herd mentality because um, that didn't let you be authentic to who you are. And he always believed that you should be authentic to who you are. Which again, that could get very, very misinterpreted. But I mean, I think that's a good note to leave people on. Yes. Because that was very positive and uplifting. I liked it. Yeah. But I, I would I would also add to let go of your regrets and your guilt. Anything yeah, you feel that, guilty about and that, yeah. that is part of a more a more fate. He very much believed yeah. that that you shouldn't hold on to he 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 doesn't necessarily believe like oh you I fuck up I'm just gonna put it out of my head. No, you but forgive he yourself. Believe, yeah, he didn't believe you Learn should beat yourself up. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, that doesn't That's sound very nihilistic at all, does it? Not at all. No. <laughs> that sounds like me and my hippie days just meditating and balancing my chakras. Yeah. And releasing releasing all my guilt and telling myself all my dreams and feeling my energy and releasing love into the world and the universe. Yeah, I don't know how he felt about all that, but he I, I bet he would have loved it. He should have gone down to India. Maybe did he go to did he go to India? He was aware of Buddhism and Hinduism and he he liked them, but his work was more concerned with and that's kind of why I like Carl Jung, because he kind of Carl Jung really reads Nietzsche a lot. He has like a whole lecture on Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It's a massive two book volume on just one book interpreting it. Um, but he kind of picks up where Nietzsche left off and he goes more into the psychological development. And Carl Jung was also very heavily into not just Western mysticism, but also looking at Buddhism, Hinduism, um, and a lot of Eastern pathologies and kind of bringing them over to the west and kind of combining them so i think nietzsche if he had maybe lived longer and gotten past all the western stuff and maybe looked more to the east he he probably would have really liked it but he was very concerned with the the present the here and now and what was going on but i agree he probably would have enjoyed certain aspects of their society yeah he was a hippie yeah, I mean, he was... <laughs> For the most part, his belief systems. Yeah, I believe at a certain point in his life, he tried to be vegetarian. Um, there was a point during his madness where there was a horse in the streets and a guy was beating it. And he ran up to the horse and like he held it and he was crying and in tears. And this is kind of how he was made to be a madman. And he said, I understand you. I understand you and your suffering to the horse. And he like cried and yelled at the man for beating it. And like, everyone was like, Oh, there's Nietzsche being crazy again. <laughs> and it's like, no, he's actually, you know, kind of a compassionate person. Um, it's sad the way that he went. No, when his, when he was dying, he wrote some pretty funny shit. He, he like asked for the Pope to be murdered and like yeah. asked for a German, German officer to be like arrested and like, wanted all anti-Semites shot dead in the streets. And yeah, he, he, he wrote, kinda... he, that's the best part. He wrote that. He was like, I would shoot every anti-Semite like, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I think people, honestly, one of the Bobby Fisher, I believe is the chess player that went kind of nuts. And, and he wrote a lot of political things. Like he started writing about, um, I think he moved to the Philippines or something, but he got on the radio and did an interview and was saying how, um, you know, 
America needs to stop going into other countries and infiltrating yeah. and like being yeah. so ruthless. And then he got like cast out as a nut because he had compassion. It's right. weird. Like in intellectual circles, if you have compassion, you're a nutcase. Yep. Mm. I enjoy it. It's interesting. I enjoy it. So next week we're going to talk about postmodernism now that we broke down Nietzsche. And Nietzsche is where the beginning of the critique of Western society and the nihilism comes from. And then postmodernism, um, just to give it a little bit of context, is right after World War II. Uh, France got pretty messed up by both the world wars, and that's kind of what influenced their thought. And I kind of see the United States potentially heading that way. So we'll get into it next week, and we'll see. Don't tread on me. <laughs> like, share, subscribe, all the and fun back stuff. Rubs. Back rubs? Back rubs. Yeah, definitely back rubs. rubs. The weight of existence is weighing heavily on my shoulder. I need to I need to see a massage therapist. You read a lot of philosophy, that's why. Yeah. I read too much philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Love you all.